Well, hello, everyone. So good to see you. Hey, just want to say thank you so much for joining this online service. Man, our heart here at ABF is that everybody is connected to a local church of believers. And so this video is intended to be just a supplement, whether it's an extra teaching in your week or if you're out of town, that's our heart for this teaching. So thank you so much for joining us here today. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. Wanted to let you know about a few things going on. First of all, if you wouldn't mind texting us at 97,000, that's 97 with three zeros, uh, text us any prayer request. We would love to pray for you this week, wherever you are, we'd love to pray for you. That would be great. That's the first thing. Also, if you're interested in some of the other things that are going on here around the church, the best way is to go on our website at agorabible.org. You can see what ministries are going on, the different events that we have uh, going here in the next few weeks, uh, different ways to connect in groups, ways to serve, etc. It's all there on the website. Finally, thank you so much for your continued generosity. They're the only reason why we stay afloat and can do all the things that we do is because of your support. So you can also give online through the website as well. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's teaching. All right. Well, thank you, Josh. And uh, thanks for joining us online, for spending some time in God's Word. As you may have noted, we're just starting in this new series, working through the book of 1 Corinthians, just kind of verse by verse, chugging through it. And uh, this week, continuing on in the kind of an intro part of the book. As uh, you're turning with me, we're in uh, 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 10. As you're turning to that, I'm wondering if you can consider a time at some point in your life where someone confronted you about a particular shortcoming in your life, an area of a growth, you might say, I'm wondering how you received that conversation. Was it something that you're like uh, agitated about, something that was annoying to you, something that angered you? Or would you say, man, it was, it was great being confronted about that issue. That was just super uh, helpful in my life. Typically, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't always love to have something that's pointed out. But it's kind of ironic when you think about it because it's so often that when something's exposed, you're kind of like, oh, I was blind to that. I didn't realize that. I should be something that we actually appreciate it. You think about for someone that calls out and says, hey, listen, you've got something stuck in your teeth. What do you say about that person? You say that person, you're just like, man, you are a good friend to me. Why are they a good friend to you? Because if you think about it, they're willing to have the awkward conversation with you so that you can avoid looking foolish. And so you can kind of go, uh, not going in the remainder of your day with some big chunk of uh, something in your teeth. You're like, man, you're a good friend. Well, this is the same idea for us to start to flip the switch and realize that when someone actually is pointing out a, a growth area, that it's actually the best gift that they could offer to you. Man, there, there should be a degree of like, wow, thank you so much for bringing that up. I didn't realize that I was doing that. It could have made me look foolish and I could have gone on to hurt myself and hurt others if I wasn't aware of it. You see, there's a, a mindset that needs to change if we're going to be in a redemptive community, in a community that's 
holding each other accountable, that's nudging each other towards becoming more like Jesus Christ. Well, Paul in this situation is writing to this uh, group of uh, young believers in the city of Corinth, and he's wanting to convey some different things that, he's been, that have been brought to his attention, some areas of growth, and it's completely compelled by love. If you think about it, there's nothing that Paul gains by writing this letter. It's something that the Holy Spirit has charged him to invest in this group of people. And one of the ways that we grow the most is when someone exposes an area in our life that needs to be shaped more like Jesus Christ. Specifically, Paul is addressing what snuck into the church, a degree of division that's breaking in and realizing how much that, how much damage that can cause if it's not addressed. Anybody here that's ever been a part of any kind of a, a church split or a, a break in a church, you're just like, man, if you can avoid that, if you can get ahead of that uh, and address issues prior to it getting to that point, man, what a gift that you can offer. So we have a, a lot of uh, undergirdings of what's causing the division today, some of the root issues that are going to be addressed. And I think they're still very relevant to us still today. Let me just pray before we start in 1 Corinthians verse 10. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this chance to gather around your word and how often it is a mirror to us how we look into it, we begin to see areas that you're wanting to bring up in our own lives. God, I know it does that for me so often, even in my time this week in the text. God, I ask that you'd speak to us through this, uh, through this uh, exercise of walking through this section of scripture as we uh, try to faithfully gather around your word, God. We invite that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so starting in uh, verse 10, chapter 1, it says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers." Start, we'll, we'll camp there for a moment. It starts with a bit of an appeal for us to understand that word in today's context. It would be a little bit different than just a, a request, more like the idea of pleading for something. There's a degree of desperation in it. My three kids headed back to school. Probably many of yours did this uh, week as well. They were heading back and uh, they were getting together with a group of friends for breakfast before the first day of school. And it was interesting to see uh, one by one, each one of my kids pleading with me to help pay for that breakfast. And of course, as the father, I stood my, gr no, I didn't stand my ground. I actually helped pay for that. But that's the idea of, of pleading is this request that has some degree of desperation to it. It's actually here that he kind of gives an undergirding for what that request is. He says, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, we have to understand, we've heard, we've heard that description of Jesus many times. This would be something that they're still adjusting to, that they're adopting. Think about that full title, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is his position 
over everything. He left the manger. He left the cross. He's now Lord and reigning over all. It was important for their development to start to embrace that idea that he's the Lord. Jesus is his specific name, the name that we're told one day every knee will bow and tongue will confess. And then the, the Christ is, if you think about it, is the actual title of who he was. He was the Christ that they had been waiting for, the one that would rescue them. They just thought it would be from Roman rule. They've discovered that it was a bigger rescue than that. It was the rescue from their sins. So he starts with that foundation for the name in which he's going to make this important appeal to them, this pleading with them. And what is the appeal for them to do? He's interesting if you think about it, what he's asking for, that all of you agree, like, Wait a second, that's a pretty big request if you think about it. Asking them to agree on everything. Man, trying to get a group of people to agree on things is a big effort. Imagine all these people from coming from different backgrounds, different angles, different perspectives, uh, different uh, patterns of sin they're breaking out of. Expecting them to agree is a difficult ask if you think about it. Digging into that a little bit, when it says all agree, the original language actually is saying, uh, d would be uh, described as saying the same thing. Saying the same thing. So basically saying, I'm asking, I'm pleading with you to all be saying the same thing, to have the same message. So it doesn't mean that they have to agree on all of the peripheral things. It's to get united around the main things. And what is the main thing? Jesus Christ, the Lord, being clear on what he's done, his finished work on the cross. You see, that's where we need to have a united testimony in order for us to survive. If you think about it, why so many of the different cults and different uh, weird religions that are out there tend to thrive is because they're very united in their particular confusion. They're all going the same exact direction. My wife and I were watching a show. It's called Under the Banner of Heaven. Under the Banner of Heaven. It's based on a true story kind of exposing the false teachings of the Mormon church and kind of unraveling a, a crime investigation. It's kind of an intense thing. Intense uh, series, if you will. But what we found unique was how united they were and how anybody that would start to deviate from what they claimed to be true, man, they were brought in line instantly. There was a heavy pressure to be heading the same direction. And even in all of their confusion, they realized that their existence and their advancement hinged on unity. Now us, with a corner on the truth, the, the gospel message, the rescue that Jesus Christ offers to an otherwise lost and dying world, we need to be united on that, heading in the exact same direction in order for the church to flourish, in order for it to thrive. That's what he's charging them with. He tells them, he says, for it has been reported to me it's been explained to him. I mentioned this last week that he had received reports that things weren't going real great there in Corinth. 
find it interesting that he names his informant, Chloe, who is a woman within the church and the, her people would be referring to her family. He wasn't getting caught up in the, the game of he said, she said. He was very clear to explain who was specifically reporting this so that they could change the direction of their behavior. If you think about it, this would have been an area of disunity that they most likely were unaware of, not realizing that it was creeping into their, their church, into their community, but obviously it was threatening them. Disunity, the word that's used here is actually the word schism that we have today. And it's actually the pretty barbaric picture. It's the picture of something being chopped up and parted out in smaller pieces. If you stop and think of that description, how often is that the description of the church? So often disunity causes division with the church and then lots of people going lots of different directions. And man, what a heartbreaking thing when we don't figure out how to work through the issues that have a tendency to divide us. And if you think about it, we've talked about this before, there's so many things that have the potential to divide. It used to be just kind of church-related things, topics like doctrine, topics like music style, topics like preaching preferences, all of those different things. But now we've had some new things added into the mix, our thoughts on politics, our thoughts on, on medical care, on how responses to uh, a pandemic, all of those things have caused so much potential for division within the church. And what he's charging them to do, he's pleading with them to do, is to work it out, to work it out. Figure out how to keep the main thing the main thing. Have some of those tough conversations and come to the place where you can agree to disagree on some non-essential topics. I don't know what makes us think that we all have to be headed on the exact same direction on peripheral things, but that is not at all a biblical concept. There's room, there's freedom for the Holy Spirit to be doing different things at different times in different people's lives. And if you think about it, none of us are gonna arrive in heaven and get a badge that says, you got it all right. On all the debatable topics, congratulations, you are right on all of them. I really question that there'll be anyone receiving that badge. So instead, we're called to tough conversations. We're called to extend grace for differences. We're called to work through stuff. And I love at the very end of that section, what does he refer to them as? He refers to them as my brothers. You see, the disunity and the issues that they have wasn't something that Paul was willing to have to cause them to deviate, to go different directions. He still sees them, despite their differences, as brothers, as sisters in the Lord. Too many times we give ourselves permission to have somebody that thinks differently and we're just done with them. I'm finished with that person. I'm moving on. I'm cutting them off that couldn't be further from the Lord's heart and what really lays a foundation for disunity within the church. When there's more and more people that are like, well, I'm not dealing with them anymore. I'm not dealing with them anymore. And you're like, before you go at your list of nemesis are, is a mile long. So his pleading is for unity, continues with that theme. He says, what I mean is that each one of you who you says, I follow Paul, 
or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? What Paul, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that, not, that one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. We'll stop there for a little explanation. I don't know what comes to mind when you think of the word idol. We have a lot of different pictures in our mind of idols, but sometimes it might just be something like a, a small wooden image or a carved piece, something in, in brass. Or I remember my wife and I going to a Thai restaurant back in Chicago. We were shocked right at the entrance. They had this little collection of mini idols and they had incenses burning there. It was super creepy just even thinking back about that experience. And so I don't know what you associate with idols. I think in this context, we're talking about the unhealthy place that we can elevate somebody, a person to this position of the role of an idol in our life. Think about that in our culture. It's definitely a pattern or a trend and we don't try to hide it. We have TV shows called the American Idol. This, this picture of, of elevating, elevating somebody and celebrating them. And think about what the idols are and the different, it's kind of silly if you actually stop and think about it. These grown adults, these grown-ups that have gotten really good at kids' games, we're like, wow, we should hold them in really high regard and high esteem. You're like, really? Is that as a culture who we want to choose as an idol? Or think about it, somebody that's gotten really good at acting on out a, a script or, or, or pretending to be a different character. You're like, yeah, they're worthy of being elevated. Really, uh, in, in bygone times, they would have been court gestures, not somebody to be elevated or celebrated. Basically, as a culture, we go in a particular direction and it often doesn't make any sense at all. So it doesn't make sense that the city of Corinth where they really elevated philosophy and philosophers that they do the exact same thing. They choose their favorite pastors or elders, ministers and say, I'm going to land in that person's camp. I'm going to choose to put all of my stock in that one particular religious leader. See, we were not the ones that had came up with present day of, of celebrity pastors. This is something that started even within the early church of moving somebody that's in a position of spiritual authority and moving them into an unhealthy, godlike status. He's confronting this. It's been something that we've had to push back against for just generation after generation since then. I was reading this, uh, this week, just a quote by Martin Luther. If you're familiar with Martin Luther, he wrote this. He says, I pray you leave my name alone and do not call yourself Lutherans, but Christians. Kind of ironic. Who is Luther? My doctrine is not mine. I've not been crucified for anyone. St. Paul would not that anyone should call themselves of Paul nor of Peter, but of Christ. How then does it befit me, a miserable bag of dust and aches, to give my name to the children of Christ? I think that's interesting how Luther, uh, one of the, the most influential uh, uh, Christian leaders in the, in the church, that he's describing himself how I, I often feel a miserable bag of dust 
and aches as we get older. That's a, a fitting description, but he didn't want any of that to be upon himself. Or another gentleman you might be familiar with, his name is Charles Spurgeon, one of the most recognized Baptist preachers who ever lived. Listen what he had to say about this idea. He said, I say of the Baptist name, let it perish, but let Christ's name last forever. I look forward with pleasure to the day that there will be not, where the, there will not be a Baptist living. I hope they will be gone. I hope the Baptist name will soon perish, but let Christ's name endure forever. Man, the, it's okay to have a, a preference of pastors, but when they move to an unhealthy place where they become a, a rival God, that's what's being confronted here. And Paul highlights the different camps that folks were creating. He mentions the different names of the camps. The camp of Paul, camp Apollos, uh, camp Cephas. You're like, who's Cephas? That's just a Peter, another name for Peter, one of the 12 disciples. And then he mentions a fourth group. He says, and the, those who say, I follow Christ. Now, upon first read, I was like, well, that, isn't that the, the group that you want to be in out of the four groups? But I think that in this context, it's a, a negative description because this is the party that sounds the most spiritual, but unfortunately known often to be the most elitist out of the group. The person that's willing to say, well, the Lord spoke to me, but it's not willing to receive any input from other believers. A dangerous place. The person that's willing to say, you know, I have my own personal relationship with God. I don't need church and I don't need Christian community. Despite the charge that Jesus specifically gave us not to forsake the assembly of believers. The charge that he put in place, the position of, of pastors, of elders, of leaders, of deacons within the church that we are to be accountable to. That person is really just as divisive within the church as anybody else that lands on their camp of favorite pastor that they want to follow. Paul doesn't want any unhealthy attention himself personally. That's why he says, is Christ divided? This wouldn't, wouldn't it make any sense. That's not part of his character to be a dividing unit. He asks a couple other questions with the obvious answers. What does he say there? He says, was Paul crucified for you? In other words, Jesus is the one that bore your sins. I'm not the one that is your rescuer. I just point to the rescue in which you offer. He asks another question. He says, were you baptized in Paul's name? Each more silly question saying, it's not the name of Paul that you're baptized to. He's not the Lord. He's not the Christ. You submitted to him. Let's make sure we stay on target. And then he goes on a little bit of a tangent reflecting on who he's actually baptized. He mentions a few people. He mentions Crispus, which was a leader in the synagogue. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 18. He mentions a, a family that he had all come to, to Christ at the same time and all been baptized. He mentions Gaius that we don't know much about other than he hosted Paul uh, in some of his travels. But he goes through and he's explaining, he's not trying to belittle baptism, but he's trying to explain, man, I'm not about baptism. That wasn't what I was trying to do. I was trying, he's going to explain in a moment, to stay true to the gospel message, the rescue message of Jesus Christ. He says something kind of funny to me at the end there. He says, beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. 
kind of showing a bit of his age there. He's saying, man, I can't remember. These are the names that I remember, but there might be some others that may have slipped my mind. I don't know if there's anybody else that's feeling their age with that, that you have things that you're just like, man, I, I, I showed up in the kitchen to, to do something. You're like, why did I come here? And you just end up leaving with a cookie because you can't remember. But there's so many times you just have these forgetful moments. And I think Paul's showing us that even he himself is not worthy of being worshiped and elevated. He's just a common man like you and I, a fellow saint that is desperately dependent on Jesus Christ. All right, continuing. And here in the the next verse, it says this, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Again, Paul's not belittling baptism here. He understood the same thing that we understand. It's an outward expression of an inward decision. So the decision that's made, it's the way to express that. But he wasn't concerned about baptizing. He was concerned about his main calling. What do we see his main calling is? To preach the gospel. To preach the gospel. We talked about that last week, that every single one of us has a crystal clear calling on our life. It's not a vague thing out there in the universe we're trying to identify, but we have a universal calling to make sure that the merciful rescue is offered to everyone that would otherwise be headed to a Christless eternity. Why? We talked about that also last week. Because unless somebody hears, unless somebody actually verbalizes what Jesus offers, what he did on the cross as a payment, as a substitute for us, man, there's no way that somebody would ever just just stumble on that. They're not going to just know that intuitively. Somebody has to communicate that to them. And it only comes when we open our mouth. I was at the men's retreat this last weekend. It was uh, just some good times in our small groups, just good conversations. We're talking a little bit about this at one of our last groups. I I mentioned a a famous quote that you may have heard at some point in your life by St. Francis of Assisi. It's gained a lot of popularity. He said this, he said, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Again, preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. What I believe is he's actually presenting a confusing line of thinking. He's trying to present the idea that our life, that our actions is the message. Here's the important thing for us to understand. You are not the message. You aren't the message. In fact, if we're honest, if somebody watches our lives long enough they're most likely going to be disappointed to some degree. Ask my wife about that later. We're not the message. That's good news that we're not the message, though. The message that we have is, man, I am a fallen, broken sinner in desperate need of rescue, and I chose to embrace the free gift that Jesus Christ offered to me on the cross, and that's my only hope for standing before you, even in these moments right now. That is the message. You're not the message. We're not trying to get more people to look at you and see your spotless, clean life. Talk about a a, a failing uh, message. I'm a sinner saved by grace, and you can be too. He says, not with, 
he's describing, he gives additional content here. He says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Think about that for a moment. What's he saying there? We've all had an encounter with somebody that's just a natural salesman, somebody that could sell ice to an Eskimo, somebody that's just that, that person that's just, just easy, always, always pushing something and you don't even realize it and you're ready to sign up and you're like, man, they're just so good. They're just, they're, just a, they're easy to convince. We all have met that person. What he's saying here is we're not called to be that guy to be the order that convinces somebody of something that's the, the shyster, if you will, not trying to convince somebody to think differently. It's not eloquent wisdom that convinces. So they were so familiar with their philosophers that we were being amazing communicators. He's saying, that's not what I'm calling you to be. And he explains to them, he explains to them, says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. What he's explained to us is our call is to be faithful with the message about Jesus Christ. Remember back uh, quite a few years now when I was in Bible college, we had an assignment where I was given, we were given two different books to read. One of the books, it, it was called Friendship Evangelism. And it compared and contrasted to another book that we were given to read. It was called Tell It Often, Tell It Well. Now, both of these uh, books laid out a case for kind of their basis for evangelism. The, the one about the friendship evangelism kind of laid a foundation saying, man, you're we're intended to develop uh, relationships with people, extended relationships, and when the, the time is uh, right in that relationship, then you look for the opportunity to speak about Jesus Christ. The second one was more of the case of, yes, develop relationships, but also be ready to share any time the opportunity arises. And I obviously, you can tell by the way I'm talking about this, lean that direction by the biblical basis. We're, we're called to, to tell it often and tell it well. It might be the FedEx man in a short conversation. It might be somebody that we've been friends with for years, but we're not intended to make everybody into some long-term project with the hope of someday communicating with them. Instead, open and available whenever God places someone across our path. This last week, we had a little miscommunication in my house and my car keys actually got left in my wife's purse. And so I actually uh, ended up taking my son's car to work. And so I was driving on the 101 and that day that you always dread blew out one of the tires. I was in the, in the fast lane. And so I had to quickly figure out how to get over to the right side and ended up getting a AAA tow. It's interesting. You're just like, oh man, what are you doing here, God? What are you, what are you up to this? I had so many things on my list of things to accomplish in that day. It's interesting because I got placed there with a gentleman that I'd met at one point, but really hadn't spent any time talking with them. But it was so cool how God ended up using that blown tire to be a two-hour conversation, talking about spiritual things, getting to encourage, getting to challenge, all of these things that God had in store in that conversation. And I think that wouldn't have come if I had fully bought into the friendship evangelism mindset, but instead trying to be available and be a mouthpiece when God opens up the door for conversation. I like this idea of being ready to share your faith whenever it comes up. 
How do you get ready with that? How do you, how do you get at a place? I'll tell you what, it's not gonna be something that you stumble into. It's gonna be something that you put some work into it to figure out what you're comfortable with sharing your message. I think a beautiful exercise, if you're gonna actually take something from this sermon, maybe try this, little homework assignment. What if you actually sat down with a good old fashioned pen and paper and actually outlined your testimony? What was your life like before you encountered Jesus Christ? What was, that, what was that existence like? Then describing a little bit of what that encounter, when you first crossed paths with Jesus, when your eyes were finally open and you embraced his death as payment for your sin, what did that time look like? And then the third part of a testimony is just outlining what has life looked like since then? On the other side of embracing, doesn't mean that you have to sugarcoat it. It's been challenging, but God's been doing amazing things. You see, when you actually take the time to actually write that out, you have the starting point of a conversation. So you're ready whenever you're interacting with somebody. You don't have to be a great theologian, just ready to share your, sto your sto story, your testimony. And it would bring me great joy if somebody actually did this and sent me a, an email this week outlining your testimony. I would love to celebrate that with you or really any one of the staff. So that's the charge that he gives us, not with words of eloquent wisdom. He says that interesting statement, I already pointed to it, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We have to understand that the gospel message just in and of itself has power to transform. It's compelling. It's contagious. It's something that we're all drawn to at our deepest core level. Every single person longs for forgiveness. Every single person longs for meaning. Every single person longs for significance. Every single person longs for a do-over, for a mulligan, for a, a fresh start. That's the power that's there in the gospel message. Not to mention the power that's happening, that's drawing people to Jesus is the Holy Spirit working behind the scenes, taking off blinders, making him completely irresistible in somebody's life. Don't try to take on that responsibility. We're just to communicate the message faithfully. And then the Holy Spirit works behind the scenes, drawing folks to himself. I'll end with this last story. There's a gentleman that goes to our church. Uh, he's been going for quite a few years. His name is Matt McCormick. And uh, now he's spending a little bit as a realtor part-time up in Northern California, part-time here. But he's actually the son of a, a baseball player. You might be familiar with the name of Matt or of Mike McCormick. He was a Cy Young uh, pitcher for the uh, San Francisco Giants and kind of a, a cool testimony. But Matt tells the story of how he prayed for his dad for 32 years that he would embrace Jesus Christ and was actually in his later years getting a little bit anxious about the possibility of that actually happening. But he mentions the story and it's one that he still gets emotional and choked up about to this day. Mentions the story of them being at a church service. They happened to be at a church service where they had the opportunity for people to respond to the message of Jesus Christ. And Matt felt tugged in his spirit. He leaned over to his dad he said, Dad, Dad, listen, he said, uh, this, this might be a selfish thing, but man, I just, I just hope for the day that both of us get to play catch together in heaven. 
kind of a powerful thing if you think about it between a father and a son. It wasn't because he was some great orator. It wasn't because he was so fluent with the gospel message. He was just pointing as a son, just pleading for his dad to go forward and to be rescued. And that was the turning point in Mike's life. He did. He actually went forward that day. He gave his life to Jesus Christ. And before passing away, that was his legacy. More than his pitching, more than anything, that he embraced Jesus Christ for his rescue. And now Matt then has the hope of one day being reunited with him, playing catch in heaven You see, our God isn't looking for us to do something crazy or miraculous with this calling that he's placed on us. He's looking for us to be faithful and to speak up as we have opportunity. So for us, the challenges here in our text today, just as a reminder, the commitment towards unity. Something we have to fight for. It's not something we can, uh, we're going to stumble upon. It's something that we have to resist to notice when there's divisions that are starting and to be fighting for peace, looking for opportunities to extend grace, for us to resist the elevation of man, for us to be cautious about that, for us to be like, oh man, I don't, I don't want to elevate somebody to an unhealthy position even in my life. And then the last one there that we've just referred to is this coming back to our calling that we've been invited to be part of the story of someone, part of someone's testimony, part of the the faithful communicator of the gospel message. All of these things are great reminders and we should see it as a gift that Paul's reminding them and in turn reminding us. He's pointing out the something is stuck in our teeth and that's a good thing. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to study this section of scripture and the challenge and calling. And it's interesting because it seems like uh, already in this book, we keep bringing us back to what we're intended to be about, about reaching people that desperately need you. God, I pray that you'd renew that calling in our lives, that we wouldn't let the distractions of disunity, the distractions of uh, getting misdirected, the distractions of idols, the distractions of all of those things to get in the way of what you've placed the call in our lives. God, we thank you for the fact that we do have our call in our life, that you've chosen to include us in all of this, and that you're the one that has the power behind the scenes to change someone's life, to draw them to yourself. Thank you again in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thanks so much.